We're going to be in Revelation 11 this morning. Actually going to start a new chapter. I said a while back, I kind of made a commitment that somewhere along this journey we would cover an entire chapter in a single Sunday, and I've been flipping ahead and trying to figure out how I'm going to make that come true. When a man says he's going to do something, he ought to do it. So we'll see what happens. Chapter 15 is kind of short. Um, There's a lot in there. Chapter 18 is a possibility, maybe. Um, We'll see. Maybe we can just have a five or six hour service. Get it done. (laughs) All right, we're going to read the first two verses of chapter 11 this morning. Um, But before I do, I want to go back just a moment to the last part of chapter 10. I finished speaking about that last week. We were talking about John's obedience to the command of the angel, which is Jesus Christ there in that chapter. We talked about the commission given to him that would be fulfilled by the church down through the church age, warning concerning these things, testifying concerning these things. And then today we're going to talk a little bit about John's measurements. Okay, so we're still looking at the testimony of John in this parenthesis in which testimony of God's truth in dark days is the backdrop okay we live in dark days we live in troublesome times a precursor to everything that is written before time and there is yet testimony there is yet God at work behind the scenes and we need not be too discouraged because God is still in the business of revealing himself and we're a part of that and can be a part of that testimony. As far as I'm concerned, the more restrictive things get, the more persecution comes, the louder I want to be. Okay, I just, they they like to shove it down our throats and put it in our face. We can turn around with the Word of God and do the same thing, and come what may. But in verses 9 and 10, Matthew and I were talking last Sunday a little bit after service, and he pointed something out that kind of escaped me, and I think that there's an interesting truth contained therein. You know, John was told in verse nine or verse eight to go and take the little book or the book that was open in the hand of the angel. He was commanded to go and take. And in verse nine, it says he went to the angel and said, "Give me the little book." Okay, the voice from heaven told him to go take it, not to ask for it. You know, John was obedient, he was immediately obedient, and I don't want to read too much into this, but the response of the angel was, take it. It wasn't, here you go, it was, take it, take it out of my hand. John was called to go and take it, not necessarily to ask for it, okay? And it made me think a little bit about salvation and some of the things that were mentioned this morning in the prayer request about these people who pray prayers and think that because they ask Jesus to do something or Jesus to give them something many years ago that they can just continue to live the way they want to live and there's no evidence of salvation in their lives. I think the contrast here between give me something as opposed to taking, taking what has been given is interesting to apply to salvation. The reason we've got so many false converts today who don't understand what it is to follow Christ and who don't 
bear fruit of that relationship in their lives is because there was a point in their life where they went to God and said, give me, give me. Just give me. Give me salvation, God. I want it. I want the flu shot. But salvation is not something we go to God and say, give it to me. It's something God has given for us and He tells us to come take it. You're not saved unless you take from God what He has given from you. Unless you receive from Him what He offers. You don't just go to God and say, give me something. God's told you to take it. The Bible says in John 1, as many as receive Him, that word receive implies taking, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Salvation is taking what God has given from us. Receiving it. Not just give me. We go to God with give me this, give me that, give me this, and then when something bad happens, we blame God. Why would a loving God allow this? Why would a loving God do this? God's a jealous God. The Bible's very clear about that. And He loved us in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And He offers His salvation in such a way that we can take it freely. We must receive it. Instead of waiting for God to do something, God already did it. We just need to receive it. In a sense, just like John was told to go and take, take it from the hand of the Lord. And so many people are unwilling to do that. They're unwilling to take that step of faith. And that's why you have people that prayed prayers, God, give me, give me, give me. But they never took from the hand of the Father what He was offering. And then they, their lives bear that truth because there's no fruit. Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Okay, oftentimes we want to say, why would a loving God, when the source of a tragedy is not anything God did, it's the foolishness of man. It's the sinful choices that man made. Just because somebody dies doesn't mean they go to heaven. And just because somebody said a prayer 20 years ago in a church service and walked an aisle doesn't mean that because they died they went to heaven. Salvation is something we must receive. And when we receive it, the power of God bears fruit in our lives. Make no mistake, it's a free gift. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But it's something that we take from God who's already given that we might take it. So that was an interesting contrast I saw there in verse 9. Matthew brought that up, and I thought that was a little bit uh, uh, appropriate to some of the things that we've been praying this morning. So as we pray for these that need the Lord, let's pray that they will take from God the salvation that He offers, that they'll receive it, and in doing so, that uh, they will bear fruit in their lives. Let's turn to chapter 11. I'm going to read the first two verses. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood. We talked last week about this imagery here. This angel was already standing, but he at some point must have sat down. It says the angel stood saying, rise. So John had sat down, okay, obviously. John ate the book, it was sweet in his mouth, bitter in his belly, bitter enough it made him sit down because he had to be told to rise here. 
Okay? The angel must have sat down with him. That mighty angel was Christ. And I talked about how that was a picture of the, the, the empathy or the sympathy of our Lord for his saints. In times of trouble, that mighty angel sat down with John. But this angel stands here and tells John, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. This is the third command given to John in this parenthesis. Earlier in chapter 10, verse 4, he's told to seal up and write not the voice of the seven thunders. In verse 8, he's told to go and take the book open in the hand of the mighty angel. And here in 11 verse 1, he's told to rise and measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. So all of this goes together. Just because we've started a new chapter doesn't mean we're in a different place or in a different vision here. This is all one parenthesis. It all goes together. It's all part of the testimony of John here and what he's being commanded to do and what he does. So this goes with chapter 10. This is the third commandment that is given to him in this context. John is an actor here. He's not just a, an observer sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. He's actually participating in this revelation. We as the church are supposed to be actors in God's program and plan for the purpose of the ages. Not just sitting on the sidelines, going to church, punching the church time card, and living our lives somewhere. We are to be actors. We are to be involved in one another's lives. We are to be involved in shining the light in a dark world. Even the least esteemed, the seemingly most uneducated among us, are an important part of the church. And yet we don't encourage these to exercise the role that God has given them. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. John is an actor here. So are we to be actors even now in the ministry of this church. Not just the pastor, not just the elders, not just the deacon, even the least esteemed among us. What's written here by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is so revolutionary. But it goes back to the New Testament church, but it's so foreign to anything we understand today. Let's read the first few verses here. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Paul is talking to the believers within the Corinthian church. How dare you have a dispute against one of your brethren in this church and you take it to law on the outside and not settle it within the body? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you not unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Here Paul reveals that even the saints will have a role in judging the world, in administering Christ's law and government in the millennial kingdom. Not just, actor, not just observers on the sidelines, but actors. You know, these things are revealed in the parables that Jesus taught about the talents. 
to whom much is given, much is required. The one that was wise, wise with um, uh, uh, ten talents was given much in the kingdom of God. The one that was wise with five talents was given much in the kingdom of God. The way we exercise governance in the church is dress rehearsal for what God has planned for the saints in the kingdom. Know you not that we shall judge angels? I don't know exactly what that means, but the saints or the church will have a role in the judgment of angels, powers and principalities, those that side with Satan and the beast. We'll have a role, not as observers, but as actors. How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. If we have a controversy in the church, the Bible says we are to take those that are least esteemed, those that aren't want to speak out, those that aren't want to give an opinion, and set them in a place to judge and to offer advice. How often do we do that in the church? How often are the least esteemed among us sought for counsel? That's the way it should be here. Instead of somebody getting angry, there's a controversy. Somebody gets angry and picks up their ball and goes home and never comes back to church. We've seen that here in our body. Spiritual babies, according to Paul. Why can't we settle these matters? And in doing it, each and every person in this body is an important part. An actor, just like John was an important part of the recording of these prophecies and the visions contained therein. Even the least esteemed in the church is not an observer. If you feel like you're unworthy or you have no part in this church, you're wrong. Even the least esteemed here, the Bible says, should be set to judge in matters of conflict. And that their opinions and their insight is worth listening to. So I think this is a lesson we should remember here in the church. The church is to be, we are to be actors in God's church today because the day is coming when we will be actors in eternal things. The saints will judge the world. The saints will judge angels. The church is likewise an actor with regard to the events that we're studying here in Revelation. I mean, look at the last verse of chapter 10. Before these things would come to pass, it was said unto John, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John was an old man. He was an old man. John didn't personally go and do these things, but by writing these things down and through the copying and preservation of the saints, this Word of God went out to the churches and they have been actors as Revelation has been preached. As these things have been warned against, we have been actors in these things and we should continue to be so. Our voices of warning should grow louder and louder and louder as the days proceed because we are living in the times in which this has begun or will begun to be fulfilled. So when we preach the gospel, gentlemen, when we share Christ on the streets, it should not be without warning that He's coming, that He's coming soon. That ought to be part of every gospel conversation we have today. And in doing so, we are part of what is said would be done here at the end of chapter 10. 
John here in chapter 11 is an actor. He's told to rise and measure. God knew what he was looking at. God knew the measurements of this temple. And we're going to talk about what this temple actually is. But John was told to rise and be a part of God's plan and program. God doesn't need us to fulfill His Word, but He offers us the opportunity to be a part of it. God didn't need Jonah to go to Nineveh for God's light to shine there. Jonah was given an opportunity, and he ran from God. And God chastised him, and that chastisement would be a testimony and would be a sign of Christ three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jonah ultimately went and did what God commanded him to do because God's going to see done what he intends to do anyway. He doesn't need us, but he offers us an opportunity to be a part of it. And like John here, we should jump at that opportunity. John is told to rise and measure. Okay, Taking measurement is not without precedence in the Scriptures. We see this several times in the Old Testament and even later here in the book of Revelation where measurements are done. And it's worth considering these. Let's turn to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is closely tied to the book of Revelation much like Daniel. In fact, we're going to really dive into Zechariah 4 when we start considering these two witnesses that are mentioned here in Revelation 11 because the prophet Zechariah is quoted directly. Zechariah was a prophet along with Haggai and Malachi that prophesied to the remnant of Israel which came back from the Babylonian captivity during the events recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is when Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi prophesied. But in Zechariah chapter 2, here we see Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is measured. Okay? This is in the midst of ten visions that Zechariah has concerning Israel and Messiah. It says, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where do you go? Or whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me, so this was angel with a measuring line in his hand, went forth and another angel went out to meet him. And then it goes on to say, And said unto him, Run, speak to this young man. In other words, speak to the prophet, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. And then it goes on to talk about Zion and the blessings God has in store for her. In verse 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath He sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. So Jerusalem here is being measured for restoration, and as a testimony of the judgment that awaits her enemies. It says, The nations which spoiled you, look at the end of this verse, For he that toucheth you, toucheth the apple of my eye. Or the apple of his eye. When you touch Jerusalem and Israel, you touch the apple of God's eye. Israel has not replaced the church. 
the Israel has not awoken to the truth of Messiah. They are enemies at this moment for the sake of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of the Father and His election. And when you touch them, you touch the apple of His eye. And so Jerusalem here is being measured for restoration and as a testimony that those nations that have spoiled her, the United States included, have touched the apple of God's eye. The U.S. has used Israel for political purposes. Even to this day, the United States does not formally recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Won't do it. George W. Bush made a promise that he would move the consulate to Jerusalem during his term of office. Didn't keep that promise. George W. Bush lied to the American people just like Bill Clinton in many ways, just like President Obama. Didn't do that. The United States betrayed Israel when it made this nuclear deal with Iran recently. And re releasing a political prisoner... And, and Israel, former uh, government worker of Israel from prison doesn't make up for what's been done. When that nuclear deal was signed, this country touched the apple of God's eye. And there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. God says, For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations, that is the Gentiles, shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. We call Israel the Holy Land from this Scripture. This is where that terminology comes from. Not because the Muslims have a shrine there and the Catholics have shrines there. That's not where that terminology came from. That terminology came from a title God gave to that land. And that's right here in verse 12 of Zechariah chapter 2. It's the holy land because God chose it out of all the nations of the world. Not because the Dome of the Rock is there. Not because the Catholics have their shrines. Okay, It's holy because God chose it. And it's the place to which He will come and dwell and reign. And so here we have an angelic messenger measuring Jerusalem. Measuring it for restoration. Measuring it because Messiah will come and inhabit it. Evaluating it. God is evaluating His property. As the owner, He has every right to do that. And he tells us very bluntly that he that touches my property touches the apple of my eye. God defends his property. He didn't just give it away. He defends it. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and your descendants. I will curse those that curse you and your descendants. There's no reason for me as a Bible believer to think that that has changed. That's never changed. We as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and benefits of the spiritual blessings of the covenant made to Abraham ought to love the Jew enough to reach out to him with the glorious gospel. We ought to be thankful for the Jew and his people 
Because God used them to give His Word to mankind and because God chose them and used them, we can know the true God. And the true God is the God of Israel. It's not the God of the Quran. It's not the God of the Catholics. It's not the God of the Sodomites that wave their rainbow flags and claim to follow Jesus. It's the God of Israel. And if you curse Israel, you curse the property of God. Ezekiel chapter 40. I'm not ashamed to say these things, and they're going to be recorded and posted online for anyone to hear. And I'm not ashamed and I'm not afraid. I don't care. Ezekiel chapter 40. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. In the visions of God brought He me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I will show thee. For, th for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought here. Declare all that thou see to the house of Israel. So, Ezekiel was in captivity in the land of Babylon several, quite a few years after the city of Jerusalem was smitten. And in a vision, he was taken to the land of Israel and he was set on top of a mountain and he was given sight of a city, the city of Jerusalem. And an angelic figure, again, has a measuring reed and is sent to measure. And as you go and read through the following chapters... What you see is we have measurements here. God sends the angel to measure the millennial temple. That is the temple that will stand during the millennial kingdom in the land of Israel. He's to measure the land of the millennial kingdom, the land of Israel during that kingdom. And how it's divided amongst the tribes. It's divided very differently in the millennial kingdom than it was divided in the days of Joshua. He's also told to measure the portion of the prince. That means the land and the property of Messiah Himself where He will dwell. And He's told to measure the, the land and the property of the Levites that will serve in the temple during the millennium. So we have all of these things that are measured. Again, God is evaluating His property. Revelation chapter 21 Verses 15 and 16. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the walls thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he answered, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. What's this that's being measured? It's the New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven and literally hovers over the earth during the millennial kingdom. It's the abode of the saints. It's the bride of Christ. That new Jerusalem, as we'll see in our study of Revelation much later, transcends the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. It abides into 
the new heaven and the new earth, even after the millennium. And this new city is once again measured by God. God is evaluating His property. This new city, the city of Jerusalem, our future home, is a cube. The length, the height, and the breadth are equal. It says that this city is 12,000 furlongs. It's about 13... I'm trying to look at my chicken scratch here in the, in the margins of the Bible. I can't read my own writing. That's about 1,323 miles. In other words, the New Jerusalem would extend from Hickory, North Carolina all the way to Amarillo, Texas. That's the length. And then the depth and the breadth. It would, the buildings would be 1,300 miles high. God's measuring His property. The, the, the New Jerusalem. That's my home. Not the United States. My home's a New Jerusalem. And I look forward to the day when I can live there. Emmanuel, God with us. No temple in that city. There doesn't need to be a temple. The Lamb is the temple. There's no light of the sun needed in the eternal state. For the Lamb is the light. But once again, God measuring His property. In Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation, we have angelic messengers here doing God's work. Measuring for Him. There's one other interesting place where God takes measurement. It's in the prophet Amos. I love this book. Maybe one day we can preach through it in here. But I've cited it many times in this study of Revelation. But this is probably one of the most interesting acts of measurement in the Scriptures. Amos chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Thus He showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in His hand. So here we don't have angels doing the work of measurement. Here we have the Lord Himself with a measuring instrument in His hand. A plumb line is something that measures the straightness of a wall. It involves a, <coughs> a weight on the end of a string. And it can be used vertically or there's even a form of it used horizontally. We used to use one of these chalk lines when I laid floors. To, we would flip, flick the chalk on the floor to make sure we started with a straight line. But this is a vertical plumb line. The Lord is standing on a wall that was made by a plumb line, but He's got a plumb line in His hand to measure it Himself. And the Lord said unto me, What seest thou, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of My people Israel, and I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Amos lived in a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was at rest and seemingly prosperous under the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was in the dynasty of Jehu. Jehu was sent by God to destroy the house of Ahab and he did it faithfully. And Jehu was promised if he would follow the Lord, God would bless him. But like all the other kings of Israel, given that promise, he turned from God. Jeroboam II was in his dynasty 
was the third, was the grandson of Jehu, and it was in a time of prosperity. It was a time of wickedness. And God took Amos, who was a farmer, a shepherd in the southern kingdom, and He sent him to Israel to preach against the wickedness. And you know, he went to the altar at Bethel where the golden calf was that Jeroboam the first had built and he preached against it. And it made a lot of people upset. But God gives Amos a vision of a wall. That wall represents the kingdom of Israel. That's God's property. Now that wall had been built. They thought they were secure in their palaces, but God had a plumb line and God was going to measure according to His Word. And the measurements revealed that the wall was crooked. And God set the plumb line and said, I will no longer pass by and these things will happen as judgment. Israel was crooked and perverse according to God's measurements, despite the fact that their plumb line said they were straight. Result, prediction of utter ruin, starting with the royal house. Now it's interesting because Jeroboam was promised four generations on the throne. Jeroboam the second's son, the son of the king that Amos prophesies against here is actually murdered. And a new dynasty begins. Let's look at a couple passages real quick. Just an interesting fulfillment of prophecy. 2 Kings 10, 30 and 31, Daniel. And Matthew, if you'll read 2 Kings 15, 8 through 12. When we see these fulfillments of specific prophecy, greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God, something the Quran does not have, something the Book of Mormon does not have, something the writings of the gurus in India's, India do not have, detailed fulfilled prophecy, it's worth taking a look. 2 Kings 10, 30-31 And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, has done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart. Thy children of the fourth generation shall, shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord of Israel, or the Lord God of Israel, with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel sin. God raised up Jehu to execute judgment against the house of Ahab. Okay? And the sons of Ahab were killed, and Athaliah, the queen, I mean, uh, Jezebel was killed. And Jehu executed God's judgment and was faithful in doing so. He was faithful in executing the idolatrous priest and initially putting aside idolatry. And God promised him that his children of the fourth generation would sit on the throne. But Jehu continued after the sin of Jeroboam, which was worshiping God at Bethel and Dan at the sites of the golden calves and did not depart. But here we have four generations promised. Now Jehu's son Jehoahaz reigned in Israel. His son was Jeroboam II to whom Amos was sent to prophesy. And then his son was Zechariah. Turn to 2 Kings 15, 8 through 12. <clears throat> Shalom the son of Jabesh conspired against him and smote him before the people. And 
slew him and reigned in his stead. And the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord, which he spake unto Jehu, saying, Thy son shall sit on the, sit on the throne of Israel until the full generation. And so it came to pass. And so it came to pass. Not only does God's word promulgate a detailed prophecy, but it shows its specific fulfillment four generations later. And so it came to pass. There's a day coming when everything we're reading about, everything I'm teaching about in Revelation, we will be able to look back and say, and so it came to pass. Because when God says He's going to do something, He does it. Period. Of course, the prophet Amos prophesied judgment. God told them, you think, you follow me, but I've got the plumb line. I'm measuring your spiritual condition and it's crooked and perverse. And therefore, utter ruin is coming to you. Utter ruin came to the house of Jeroboam. Utter ruin came to the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded and led away the northern tribes captive. Many would, be, many would, be claimed, many would claim to be straight, built like that wall that Amos saw in chapter 7. Men of God who claim to speak for God. But the Word of God is the plumb line. It doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter how many preachers and how many churches in this area now think it's okay to marry homosexuals. It doesn't matter what society says about abortion or what the leaders of the mainline denominations say. I saw an astounding article this week referencing a Methodist pastor from the United Methodist Church, who came out with this diatribe about how pro-life Christians are guilty of idolatry. That if you have care and concern for unborn children in the womb of their mother, then you're an idol worshiper. You ought to care more about people that have already been born into the world and not care so much about the unborn. You ought to care more about the well-being of these mothers And because you don't, you don't follow the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're an idol worshiper and you're in trouble with God. That was his whole diatribe. Unbelievable. That's how backwards. You know, he's got his wall with his plumb line. But when God measures it, it's crooked. The United Methodist Church is wicked. Evil. Praise God that true believers in that denomination are leaving that the UMC in droves. So much so that their, their membership right now is at historic lows. Praise God for that. I hope it folds up and dies. That church has been the source of so much wickedness. You know, they embrace homosexuality. They ordain homosexuals. They ordain women to pastor churches and have been a voice for these things that clearly go against what God's Word says for many years. If the Wesley brothers were alive today, they wouldn't have any part of that excrescence, of that joke of a denomination. May faithful believers that are still in there get out. And may they continue to do so as they're doing in record numbers today. But you can, all these things could be said, but the Bible, the Word of God is the plumb line. It's the measuring stick. It tells us where the line is drawn in the sand. It's a dividing line for truth and error. He 
Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Bob, would you look that up? Tony, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. We need to be reminded of the measuring instrument here. Because so many are claiming to follow Christ, but turning away from the revelation of God's Word. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. All things are naked and open before the Word of God. I know we've read this verse many times and it would behoove us to be reminded of it constantly. The Word of God, the Bible, is quick and powerful and it is a discerner. It knows your heart. It reveals the truth. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, my friends. The Bible is spoken of here as a person. There's not much difference between the written Word of God and the living Word of God. And if you deny and mock the written Word of God, I don't care if you use Jesus' name. You deny and mock the living Word of God. And the written Word of God is whereby you will be judged. Jesus told us in the book of John that if any man hear my words and reject them, I don't judge him. I came into the world to save the world. But he that hears my words and rejects them, as do many so-called Christians today, already has a judge. The judge is the word that I have spoken. And that will be his judge in the last day. The word of God is the judge. It's the plumb line. And it will be our judge in the last day. Many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things. And this will be the plumb line that measures those things. What is your attitude concerning the Word of God? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. Because God's Word is the plumb line, we need to be Christians that constantly examine ourselves. To make sure that we're in the faith. Not because salvation can be lost. Not because of that anyway. But because it is secure. Let us examine ourselves. Constantly. Let's measure ourselves according to God's plumb line. Because without Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're a reprobate. Now that's something the world doesn't want to hear today. Well, what about the good Buddhist or the good Muslim or the good homosexual? Except you have Jesus Christ, according to God, you're reprobate. That's what the Word here says. And the Word is the plumb line. As believers, you know, we can add to that what, uh, what John says in 1 John 4.1. As believers that care about the truth and care about the Word of God, we're told, um, Beloved, believe not every spirit. We're told to be skeptical when it comes to the spirits of this world and the spirit of this age. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. 
How do we try or test the spirits of this age? With the plumb line. With the measuring tool. There are many instances of God measuring things in Scripture. We have a measuring tool. And just like God, just as God sees the importance of measuring for the sake of testimony, may we use the measuring tool being given to us to measure the things that are put in our path. That plumb line. The act of measuring in Scripture, an evaluation of God's property, an evaluation of the spiritual condition of God's people. God's property and God's people belong to Him. That's why He has the authority to measure them. It's interesting though, because in all of these other examples, the measuring agent is a supernatural being. In Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation, it's angels doing the measuring. In the book of Amos, it's God Himself doing the measuring. But here in Revelation 11, there's a human agent doing the measuring. I, I find that distinction interesting and I believe I know why. John, who is a human agent, is told to rise and measure God's property. The things that he's told to measure here, the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers, though God's property are man-centered and man-made in man's timing and therefore are measured not for blessing as the millennial kingdom or the, or the, or the restored Jerusalem, but measured for judgment. Psalm 24.1 says this, I'll just turn there quickly. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything on this earth, man-made or not, is God's. It's God's property. Okay? Man doesn't create things. Man uses pre-existing elements and pre-existing ideas to invent new technology. God created from nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's the Latin. And everything on this planet is God's. Even the man-made dam, the man-made lake, it's God's because the earth is God's. And the earth is going to realize one day that it's God's. It's already starting to feel those rumblings. But here, what John is told to measure are man-centered things. And that's why a human agent is commanded to take measurement. It's kind of like Babel. Okay? God, in His plan and purpose for the ages, already had a plan for a conduit between earth and heaven. Okay? God already had a plan. He revealed it after the Garden of Eden when He pronounced judgment on the serpent. The seed of the woman was the conduit between heaven and earth. But man jumped the gun and he wanted his own conduit. The Tower of Babel was man-made, man-centered ministry. And we see what happened there. God judged it. It was measured and it was judged. King Saul. Israel wasn't necessarily wrong in asking for a king. God prophesied to Abraham that kings would come out of his bosom. There were provisions laid down in the law when God gave it to Moses for how a king over Israel was to conduct himself. So God had plans and purposes to give the people of Israel, a king to rule over them. But they weren't willing to wait for God. 
and do it in God's time. And they jumped the gun and God gave them Saul. Saul was measured and he was found lacking, wanting, and he was judged. God's man was David. And God's man was going to sit on the throne one way or another. But only after a painful process. Man-centeredness. John is told to measure three things here. The temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. I want to consider for a bit the temple of God. What is being talked about here? Well, we know from verse 2 that this doesn't include the outer court. So what John is told to measure is the holy of holies and the holy place. Not the outer court. He's told in verse 2, don't measure it. And he's told why. I'm going to talk about that later. What is this temple? Okay? There have only been two temples in Israel's history. Solomon's temple, and then the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity under the leadership of Zerubbabel. It was expanded and beautified in the days of Herod, and it was the temple to which Jesus went. It was the temple to which Paul went. This temple, this second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. We talked about that extensively when we looked at Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Israel hasn't had a temple since then. Okay, there's only been two temples. When John is told to measure the temple of God, what temple is being talked about? Well, it can't be Solomon's temple. That temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. That's recorded in Scripture. Okay? The Ark was taken. The Ark of the Covenant was taken during that time. Nobody knows where or by whom. Traditions say that King Josiah saw the inevitability of God's judgment, knew it was coming, that he took the ark and hid it somewhere. There are those that claim that it's been located under the temple mount. We're going to see later in Revelation that the heavens are open and the ark of God's testament is seen in heaven. Did God take the ark of the covenant back to heaven? I don't know. Is the ark that is seen in heaven the heavenly model of which the earthly model was a pattern. Everything that, that Moses was told to make from the mount was patterned after heavenly things. We learned that from the book of Hebrews. So it could be that the ark of God's testament seen later here in Revelation is the prototype or the, or the real ark. And the ark of the covenant in the temple was a, was a model uh, made after the heavenly pattern. We'll talk about that a bit more. But the ark of the covenant was in Solomon's temple. It was taken at some point around the time of its destruction. And that temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. in fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, it's that date, 586 B.C., that is a, uh, uh, um, a fulcrum for dating the entire Old Testament. It's a very important date. Okay, So this temple that John is told to measure can't be Solomon's temple. Okay, Is it the second temple... The second temple was, was completed under Zerubbabel in 516 B.C. These things are recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These things are recorded in the prophets Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. In fact, the prophets rebuked the people because they start the project, they lay the foundation, but then they started working on their own houses and forgot about the temple and were rebuked for it. 
This temple was expanded and, and beautified and upgraded by King Herod. Okay, He actually built the walls around the Temple Mount. The western wall still remains from that temple. That's where the Jews go to worship. That wasn't actually a wall of one of the temple buildings. It was a retaining wall that Herod built around the Temple Mount and expanded the large court. And so the actual topography of the Temple Mount today is a result of Herod's building project. But this temple was destroyed 25 to 30 years before John wrote this book, A.D. 70, by Titus and the Romans under General Titus. So the temple of God is not talking about that temple either. It was destroyed 25 to 30 years before John wrote this. The Ark of the Covenant was never in the second temple. You know, when Jesus lived and walked this earth, the Ark was not in the temple. The Ark disappeared around the time of the destruction of Solomon's temple. There was no Ark in the second temple. In fact, that's why there's an interesting passage. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. The writer of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul the Apostle, is describing um, the uh, things that were put in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And how these things were a pattern of heavenly things. They were a shadow of greater things to come in Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, he's describing the Ark of the Covenant. He tells us what was in there the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And then he says, and over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So he's saying, we can't really even speak particularly about these things. We're not sure what it looked like. Why? Because in Paul's day, there was no ark. The ark was taken. It was not in the second temple. Okay. There's another temple revealed in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel's, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. It's the millennial temple. Okay? The millennial temple. Is this what's being talked about here? Here, when John is told to measure? No. The millennial temple is revealed to the prophet for a specific reason. In fact, lots of details about the millennial kingdom. The division of the land, as I mentioned earlier. The measuring of Jerusalem. The portion of the Levites. The portion of the prince. The temple itself. All these things are revealed to Ezekiel for a specific purpose. It tells us in Ezekiel 43, verse 10, why God chose to reveal these things. And there's some things about this revelation that I admit are very difficult to understand. But it says in Ezekiel 43.10, Thou son of man, show the house, or show this millennial temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. So God revealed these things to shame the people of Israel because of their sin. He gave them a glimpse, glimpse of His plans for them and for the true temple under Messiah, to shame them because they had forsaken Him. So we need to understand that's the reason why these things were revealed. The Millennial Temple is probably located at Shiloh, 
which is to the northeast of Jerusalem and not at Jerusalem itself, in the midst of what's called the Holy Oblation. Ezekiel reveals this portion of land called the Holy Oblation, which is for the Messiah Himself. And after physical changes that will happen to the land of Israel, after Jesus returns, it says when He returns, He puts His foot where? Mount of Olives. And the mountain divides in half. One, in one, one, way, one part of it goes in one direction, part of it goes in another direction. A, a waterway is opened between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and the Dead Sea is healed. And fishes again populate that water. So we know the whole physical topography of Israel is changed when Messiah arrives. And the Millennial Temple is probably going to be located at Shiloh in this portion of land and not actually in or on the present day Temple Mount. These are inferences we can make from reading all of these chapters. Okay? It tells us here when we read about the Millennial Temple that there will be sacrifices offered in this temple. And this is a place where many people stumble where they read the Word of God. Lots of people that refuse to interpret the Old Testament literally as it's given to us stumble at these passages. Why in the world would there be sacrificial offerings in the Millennial Kingdom? Why would the blood of animals be shed, God forbid? You know, oh how terrible. You know, poor Cecil, the lion. How many zebras did he kill? I bet the zebras and the gazelles are thankful he's dead. Okay? But I'm here to tell you that one unborn child ripped out of the womb of her mother in this country is more valuable than 100,000 Cecils in God's eyes. And he will avenge the blood. He will avenge the blood. A little side note there. But why would there be sacrificial offerings offered in the Millennial Temple when Christ Himself is ruling and reigning. Why? And people stumble at this. Well, this must not be literal. It must be fulfilled in the church. And therefore, you know, the church is a replacement of Israel. And God is finished with Israel. And these things are not going to happen. And you can't interpret Revelation literally. In these discussions, it always goes back at some point to sacrificial offerings being offered in the Millennial Kingdom. So it's worth asking ourselves this as we try to determine what this temple of God is here in Revelation 11. Turn to Hebrews 10. The first four verses. Ronnie, would you read that? The first four verses of Hebrews 10. We need to understand that the sacrifices in the Old Testament system never took away sins. They never did. There was a remembrance of sins in those sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. These things pointed toward 
the sacrifice of Messiah, much like the Lord's Supper points backwards. And by carrying out these sacrifices, it was an act of faith that looked toward a coming Messiah. The Old Testament saint was saved just like the New Testament saint. He had faith that God would send a Messiah and that Messiah would take away sins. He looked forward, and in a sense, it almost took more faith to do that than from our perspective, we look backward. We have historical evidence. We have archaeological evidence. We have the completed Word of God. We have all of these things to strengthen our faith. And the only difference between us and the Old Testament saints in terms of salvation is the perspective of time. In each place, it took just as much faith that God was going to do what He said He was going to do. The sacrifices were a visual testimony of what God would do with His only Son. Okay, they pointed to Jesus Christ. They didn't take away sins. They were for the remembrance. They were almost like a memorial looks backwards. But if it's possible for a memorial to look forward, there's probably another word for that in the English language. That's what these sacrifices existed to do. So we need to remember that when we ask, why would this be in the millennial temple? Let's look real quick at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Matthew, if you've got that, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, real quick. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect or in holiday, holiday or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. All of these things were a shadow of things to come. In the ritual was not salvation. That's why Paul says, don't let people judge you based on what you eat or what you drink. No one has a right to judge us as saints and mock us because of the Old Testament dietary laws. No, let no man judge you in respect of a new moon or a Sabbath day. These were a shadow of things to come and the body was Christ. So all of those sacrifices were a shadow of things to come. Okay? In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were anticipatory of the cross. In the New Testament, the Lord's Supper, one of the ordinances of the church, is a memorial of the cross. One system looked forward, one memorializes looking back. Why would sacrifices be offered in the millennium? I believe their function will be much like the Lord's Supper serves us as the church today. I believe they will be a memorial looking back on what Christ has done. Not because they bring salvation, but because through them God is glorified and Christ's work is memorialized. Oh, how horrible you would teach that Christ would be glorified through the shedding of blood of innocent animals. People can't comprehend that today because they don't know God. They worship the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. If you value an animal more than you value a human life, you are a backwards individual. You have something wrong with you, in my opinion. And there's lots of people that claim the name of Christ that treat pets like they are gods, like idols. It's a joke. It makes America a laughingstock to the rest of the world. Okay? Um, 
Dogs are pack animals that run the streets and are disposed of in other countries when they become a nuisance. Okay? But here they're treated to be of higher value. Jesus didn't treat, think animals were of equal value to humans. Jesus said, you know, not to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. God clothes the sparrows, and a man is more valuable than many sparrows. So we want to talk about what would Jesus do, or, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus said a man was of more value than many birds. So if you put animals over humans, you're backwards. You have a problem. But God is glorified through these sacrifices, even the millennium, because they look back upon the cross. They're a testimony. They're a memorial. Just like the Lord's table is for us. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel another reason why the sacrifices are offered. So this is not a stumbling block for me at all. God says there'll be sacrifices offered in the millennium. It's what God says, then we can accept it. It says in Ezekiel chapter 44... 28 and 29, it's talking about the Levites during the millennial kingdom, what they will serve to do. It says, It shall be unto them for an inheritance, that is the temple. The millennial temple will be their inheritance. Uh, I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the meat offerings and the sin offering, and the trespass offering, and every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. Okay? The Levites will serve to teach Israel during the Millennial Kingdom, and the sacrificial animals will be their livelihood. That will feed them. Because their portion will be to serve God in His temple. So it will be meat for the Levites. It's got a purpose. Animals were given to us for meat. That's what God ordained through Noah. There's nothing wrong with eating meat. In fact, the Bible says those that forbid or abstain or teach to abstain from eating meat in the last days are following doctrines of devils. If that's what you want to do, praise God, for dietary reasons or for personal convictions, fine. But that doesn't mean that it makes you more moral whatsoever. And if you teach that, you're teaching a doctrine of devils. Okay? They're given here for meat. So yes, sacrificial offerings are offered in the Millennial Temple, not because they're needed to cleanse sin, because Messiah Himself is here, but because they memorialize what He has done. A thousand years is a long time. There'll be people that are born. There'll be generations of people. A thousand years is four times longer than the history of our nation almost. Okay? There'll be generations of people that need to be taught the things of God. And through this temple and through the sacrificial system and the reigning and ruling of the saints, God's Word will be taught. Jesus Himself will sit on the throne ruling with a rod of iron. And even still man will rebel. Even still at the end of the thousand of years when Satan is loosed for a little season from the bottomless pit, he will gather rebels to try to overthrow the saints. This time there won't even be a fight. Fire will come down from heaven and destroy them. But we have Solomon's temple, we have the second temple, and we have the millennial temple revealed in Scripture. John is told to measure the temple of God. Can't be Solomon's temple, that was destroyed. Can't be Herod's temple, because that was destroyed 25 to 30 years before. And it's not the millennial temple, because there's 
too many differences. In fact, the Millennial Temple is probably not even located in the city of Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. What is this temple of God and why is a human being acting as the measuring agent? This is not the Millennial Temple. It's not the Solomon's Temple. It's not Herod's Temple or Zerubbabel's Temple. This is Antichrist's Temple that John is told to measure. Antichrist's Temple is the fourth temple that is revealed in Scripture. There are four Jewish temples revealed in Scripture. Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, expanded by Herod. Zerubbabel's temple is where Jesus went. In fact, the Old Testament prophesies that Messiah would have to come before the second temple was destroyed. So the Messiah has to be Jesus. Or there is no Messiah that's coming. Those are interesting passages from Haggai in the book of Daniel to show Israelis. And we'll talk about that later. But there is a fourth temple that is revealed in Scripture. It's Antichrist temple. It's a man-centered temple. It's God's property, but the worship therein is man-centered. Because the worship is instituted at a time when Israel still does not recognize Yeshua HaMashiach. It's man-centered ministry. And that's why a man is told to measure it, but yet it's still God's property. Antichrist temple. Let's look at a couple of passages and then we're going to conclude for today. Jim, if you could look up Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Tony, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4. And Graham, if you'll look up the book of Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. There is a temple revealed in Scripture that is Antichrist temple. Daniel This is part of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. In the middle of the 70th week, Antichrist, who's the prince that shall come, uh, will break a treaty he's made with Israel and he will enter into their temple and cause their sacrifice and their worship to cease. And it's what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. He will set himself up as God. So there is a temple in the time of, of Antichrist, in the 70th week of Daniel. The temple to which Antichrist enters into and sets himself up as God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Go ahead and read verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Antichrist 
goes into the temple and sets himself up as God. He goes into the temple of God, the exact same word here that's used in Revelation in terms of what John is told to measure, and he sets himself up as God. So there is a temple in Jerusalem in the days of Antichrist. And then Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time, at that time shall Mitchell, Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be time of trouble such as never was sent there for the nation, even to that same time at the at the Okay. At the time of Daniel's 70th week, uh, at the time of the rise of Antichrist will be a time of trouble, of great trouble. The temple, Antichrist's temple mentioned here, will stand in a time of trouble. It's the tribulation temple. So we know there's a tribulation temple mentioned in Scripture a temple in which Antichrist will enter and set himself up as God. That is the temple that John is told to measure here. A temple is shown to him in Jerusalem. He is to measure it, the altar and the worshipers. But then he's told to leave out the court of the Gentiles because that court is given to be trodden underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. The temple John is told to measure has an outer court that is trodden down of the Gentiles. We know that Antichrist's temple is in a time of trouble, when, a time of Jacob's trouble, when he is persecuted and trodden underfoot of Gentiles. This is Antichrist's temple. So four temples in Scripture, Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, were beautified by Herod, the Millennial Temple, and the temple during the days of Antichrist, the Tribulation Temple. That is what John is told to measure here. It is originally constructed for the worship of the Jews and the renewal of their ancient sacrifices. But this is at a time when Israel still rejects Yeshua as their Messiah. Later this temple is desecrated and becomes the home of an idol of the Antichrist. That is the fate of the tribulation temple. In Matthew 20, 24, verses 14 and 15, uh, I mean 15 and 16, Jesus warns the Jews, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, that's what Jim wrote, read about there in Daniel 9, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. That means that abomination, that image of the beast will stand in the holy of holies. Then let him which is in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Permission to rebuild the Jewish temple is connected with the peace treaty of Daniel 9.27. Okay? What does that mean? Well, the Jews can't have a temple on the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock there. Something would have to happen. Okay, I believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about an invasion of Israel in the latter times. It somehow probably involves Russia and Islamic nations, I believe they will try to invade Israel. God comes to the aid of Israel and a mighty victory is won. 
There's a mighty earthquake, and I believe in earth, that earthquake will destroy the Dome of the Rock. And then the entire Islamic world will see the Islamic armies defeated by Israel. And all of a sudden, a whole lot of Muslims will have no faith in, what just, in their, their religion. It was defeated. Out of that major event, Antichrist will rise. And there will be some sort of a treaty that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. Howbeit, the Gentile nations will still exercise authority over the Temple Mount just like they do today. Israel is a land, Israel is a nation, but they do not exercise authority over the Temple Mount. It's the times of the Gentiles. Israel does not ultimately control Jerusalem. Jerusalem's divided. There are four quarters in the old city. There's the Jewish quarter, the Muslim quarter, the Christian or the Catholic quarter, and the Armenian quarter. That city is divided. And it's not controlled by the Jews in the sense that it was in the kingdom of David and Solomon. Okay? Even today it's trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. But permission to rebuild this temple is somehow connected with the peace treaty of Daniel 9.27 that starts the 70th week. And this could arise out of the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39. At the midpoint of the tribulation, this treaty is broken... Israel is betrayed and scattered, and the temple is desecrated. This is the temple that John is told to measure. In Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. When God evaluates and measures things in the Scripture, He evaluates His property, He evaluates the spiritual condition of His people, and oftentimes things are measured for judgment. This temple is being measured for judgment. It's God's property. It's God's land. It's God's site. But it's a man-made temple. It's built by Jewish people at a time when they've made alliance with Antichrist and at a time when they're still rejecting Yeshua, their Messiah. And this temple won't stand very long. It will be desecrated very soon after it's built because it's man-centered and man-made. John is being told to measure it for judgment. Verse 2 will shine a little bit more light on that and we'll get into it next week. But this temple is important because it will be the site, it'll be the favorite haunt of a couple of street preachers, God's two special witnesses. That's where they will do their preaching. And they will be testimony. The temple won't be the testimony of the truth in those days. It will be the testimony of a lie. Because Israel's still rejecting their Messiah. But through that temple, through what happens, through their scattering, through the ministry of the two witnesses, they will wake up. And when they wake up, they will realize, like Paul did on the road to Damascus, that they've been wrong. And Jesus will come and save them. Does anybody have any questions? I know I've run a little bit long today. I apologize. Next week we'll get into the court of the Gentiles, what that means, and hopefully we'll start our discussion about what the Bible calls my two witnesses. All right, let's close. We're still on this outline, so you can continue to use this. Let me give you a quick assignment for the next couple of weeks. I don't know if we'll get there, but if you want to study 
something that will prepare you for the rest of this chapter. Study the chapter 4 of Zechariah. Okay? And remember the discussion we had about the nature of Old Testament prophecy. This is a classic example where Old Testament prophecy has an initial shadow fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. Okay? This is a classic example, Zechariah 4. And when these olive trees, I mean, when these witnesses are identified in Revelation 11, they are identified as two olive trees. And those olive trees are what are revealed in Zechariah 4. And they have an initial fulfillment for that day, but an ultimate fulfillment for the end of time in the tribulation. Okay? All right. Praise God. Let's uh, have a word of prayer over the food and we'll enjoy some fellowship together.